Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There is a symposium going on today. McMaster University is uh, going to be holding, actually, a symposium on antibiotic resistance as the threat of antibiotic resistance superbugs rises. Now, uh, Laurie Burroughs is at McMaster University, and she's going to talk to us about this. She's a professor of biochemistry and biomedical sciences and a professor of pathology and molecular medicine who studies how bacteria have become more tolerant in disinfectants. Uh, Laurie Burroughs, uh, first of all, thank you very much, Laurie, for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks, and, and for putting this on the radar. I, I, I remember having a very troubling conversation with the medical officer of health a couple of years ago, and uh, Dr. Richardson here in Hamilton, and and I said, "What's the biggest threat?" You know, when we when we look down the road here, and 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 that's what she said: it's pandemics, and it's it's this very thing that you're going to be talking about. Absolutely. Why is this happening? I mean, are we smugly sitting here saying, well, we've developed all these vaccines and we've got all these medications now. Uh, you know, we're going to be fine for the rest of our lives, but apparently not so much. Yeah, we've, we've absolutely taken antibiotics for granted. And, you know, it's one of the few classes of drugs that lose their effectiveness the more you use them. So bacteria are very good at evolving. And because we're trying to kill them, they're evolving resistance to these antibiotics. So th- therein lies the problem, obviously. They're evolving. They're rolling out here, too. So what we developed and, and are treating different things for now, uh, is, is it safe to say that, Laurie, that there's basically only a shelf life to some of these antibiotics, and then, and then they're going to be just essentially rendered useless? Absolutely. So the... the, the um the current numbers say that about 25% of uh, infections are already resistant to the first-line antibiotics that we have, so we're having to use more exotic things. And at the same time, the pharmaceutical industry has gotten out of developing new antibiotics, which is a little terrifying. Um, it just doesn't make economic sense for them to you know, spend billions of dollars developing a drug that's going to lose its effectiveness to resistance within a few years. Yeah, but we kind of need that, don't we? We absolutely do. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that we're working on in conjunction with the federal government is how do we, how do we incentivize pharma, pharma companies to continue doing this kind of work, right? So one of the, one of the things that people have suggested uh, could be done is to give a pharmaceutical company extended patent life on another type of drug. So, for example, if they have a blockbuster cholesterol drug, give them an extra five years of patent life on that as an incentive for continuing to work on antibiotics. I want to put some of these numbers out here, too, and I'd like to get your comment on this. I'm just going by some of the, the stuff in the press release here. Uh, superbugs are likely to kill 400,000 Canadians and cost the economy about $400 billion in gross domestic product over the next 30 years. Uh, with those numbers, Lori, why aren't we talking about this more? Well, we've been trying. <laughs> so, the, you know, this has been on the radar for a long time. It's one of these... Um, a global, messy, gigantic problem, you know, sort of on the scale of climate change. Um, but we really need to address it because it takes about 20 years and, like I said, billions of dollars to develop a single antibiotic. So we can't afford to not be doing this now because the antibiotics that we have are not effective for much longer. We've uh, been talking a lot uh, over the last couple of years, and we've done a number of segments here about vaccinations and, and, and the anti-vac movement, et cetera, and we got there. Uh, but when you look at these numbers here, Laura, it sounds like that's really only half the conversation. We should <laughs> Vaccination is one thing, and yes, we need to do that. Uh, but more importantly, we need to be revising that because that's not going to last us forever either. 
Absolutely. So the, the federal government has a sort of a four-pronged strategy for dealing with antimicrobial resistance. So one of them is um, something that the public can, you know, take in their own hands, which is getting vaccinated, washing your hands. Washing your hands is still the best way to keep yourself from getting sick. Um, and also not taking antibiotics when you don't need them. So things like um, the cold, the flu, those are caused by viruses, which antibiotics don't do anything against. So antibiotics kill bacteria, they don't kill viruses. So don't get antibiotics if you have a cold or the flu, and that will uh, avoid the unnecessary use. Are we, are we still doing that? I mean, could you put, a doctors would know better than, than to, to prescribe something like that, wouldn't they? They do, but you know, sometimes, sometimes it can be difficult to make a diagnosis like a, on a sore throat, right? So sometimes doctors give antibiotics uh, because it looks like the patient may have a bacterial infection. But it's important for the patient to be aware that this is a problem, right? And it's also important for people to understand that you can, you can get an antibiotic-resistant infection even if you have never yourself taken that antibiotic because once the bacteria become resistant, it's hard to go backwards, right? So once those resistant strains start to circulate, they're more likely to be picked up. I can remember, this is quite a few years ago, obviously. I mean, doctors were handing these things out with just about anybody. You know, I've got a sniffle, i got a snore throat or something else, and they, they would just automatically start issuing antibiotics. And given what happens to our bodies when we're doing that, Laurie, that was, uh, well, first of all, it wasn't a very good thing to do, but it's it's probably weakened us now too, hasn't it? Uh, well, we've we've definitely taken these these medicines for granted, but, you know, you think about all the all the procedures that we do now that are uh, absolutely reliant on antibiotics, right? So chemotherapy, joint replacements, uh, organ transplants, looking after really premature babies or people that are elderly and unwell, all of those things require that antibiotics work. And when they don't work, we're going to return to an era where infections killed a lot of people. Well, I can remember when I had my joint replacements, my knee replacements done. I mean, I, I actually, both times I ended up spending a couple more days in the hospital than I anticipated because of infection. They're always concerned about that. I mean, and you don't necessarily think of that. I think, you know, especially in a hospital environment, you figure, hey, you know, you know I'm, I'm okay here. I've got doctors. I've got nurses. I've got all kinds of, of medications here. Uh, but as my doctor told me, he says, you know, when you're like that, sometimes he says the hospital is the worst place to be. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we talk in, in Ontario about trying to um, reduce hallway medicine, but antimicrobial resistance contributes to hallway medicine for this exact reason, because people have to stay in the hospital longer. You know, they, they have more invasive treatment. Sometimes they have to be isolated if they have a really resistant organism, and all that contributes to the length of time in the hospital and the cost to the healthcare system. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you say, I think there's a, a, a sense that, uh, listen, no matter what happens here, I've got an infection. There's, there's got to be some medication for that someplace. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay. But, I'm, I, you know, we've heard too many stories of people that develop a quote-unquote infection and, and they die. Uh, and yeah. you figure, you know, in the 21st century, that shouldn't be happening. Well, you know, so this is where this is where academic uh, groups like ours come in, right? So we're still trying to develop new treatments for antimicrobial resistant organisms because we realize that somebody has to do the work and if we can get the uh, research far enough along that it's less risky for a pharmaceutical or a biotech company to, to take it up, that's what we're trying to do. But that sh- this should be, that's, that's their wheelhouse. This should be something they should be doing. 
Um, well, a lot of the a lot of the initial discoveries that pharma develops do, does come out of academia, right? But yeah. the, the issue is that we can we can only do so much, and we can't we don't have the money to do clinical trials in academia, right? That really requires a lot of a lot of money and a lot of scale, and only pharmaceutical companies really have the capacity to do that. And when you say incentivize, it basically that means throw money at them. Um, yeah, I mean, and, you know, another model is uh, look at Canadian blood services, right? So Canadian mm-hmm. blood services buys some products for diseases such as hemophilia and holds them on on stockpile so that when hospitals have a, a patient that comes in this bleeding, they get their product from Canadian Blood Services. So we could potentially think of a model like that where we have a central agency that buys these um, exotic antibiotics for the really resistant uh, infections and holds them in case we need them. Sort of a fire extinguisher model, right? Everybody wants to have a fire extinguisher, but nobody wants to have to use it. Exactly. Talk to us about the process, uh, about discovering, about developing uh, a a stronger and a more reliable and effective antibiotic. I mean, it's, you know, if you go into hospital and you get ill and, and, okay, they try this, it's not working. Mm -hmm. What's what's the next step? Is it just trial by error? You know, just keep trying different things until you find something? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, the when you go into the hospital with an infection, um, the, it, the clinicians first need to figure out what it is that you have, but sometimes they don't have time to wait for those tests to be done. So they will give you sort of a broad-spectrum antibiotic that covers a lot of different organisms. And then once they get test results back that are more specific about what you have, they can change the antibiotic to be more tailored to your specific um, bacterium. And that, you know, that's also something that can lead to resistance because when you use broad-spectrum antibiotics, there's a lot of collateral bacterial damage to the organisms in your body. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that would help is better diagnostics and more rapid diagnostics, right? So if we could tell within a couple of hours what you have instead of a couple of days, we could avoid using such broad-spectrum antibiotics. Well, and now we're get, delving into some of the, the the weaknesses in the healthcare system that we have right now, and mm-hmm. I know that's that's more political than it is, I guess, uh, the academic in the situation because it comes down to money again. Absolutely. I, I, I a friend that ha- went through that very experience that you just explained, uh, but they got sick on a Friday, and uh, the, the labs aren't really open on Saturdays and Sundays, so you have to wait till Monday before you get test results. Mm-hmm. So that's that's somewhat problematic, and in the meantime, as you say. The antibiotics that they were on uh, might be doing more damage than good. Mm-hmm. Well, this is why we say it's you know it's a big messy problem, right? So it's it's a, a political problem, it's a social problem, it's an economic problem, and a scientific problem all rolled into one. Are you on their radar, though? I mean, we were just having a discussion earlier in the program, Gloria, about uh, what the government might do. This our federal government, that is, mm-hmm. uh, with their their throne speech, and there's talk of, as you know, during the election campaign about a national pharmacare program. Can you roll that into to the research that you're doing? Um, potentially. I mean, policy changes are necessary in order to speed up um, the, regu- the approval of new drugs. So that's a conversation that we have ongoing with the government. Yeah, yeah, but that's a time to, a timely experience as well, isn't it? I mean, it takes months, if not years, to, to do those, tra- those tests. Well, yes, and, you know, political timescales are not the same as the scientific timescales, unfortunately. So, so... F- if you go to work and when we finish our conversation here and say, okay, I'm going to get back, the, the process for you to actually develop something um, is, is going to be painstakingly long, I would think. And uh, where do you begin? Is there a, a template that you work with? 
So one of one of the things that we specialize here at McMaster in is is this type of drug discovery. So we have a, a facility that we built that's very similar to what you would find in a biotech company with uh, drug screening robots and lots and lots of compounds that we can use to test against drug-resistant bacteria. So we're taking sort of a multi-pronged approach. We're looking for new antibiotics, of course, but we're also testing things like bacteriophages, which are small viruses that only kill bacteria. So there's, they were discovered actually before antibiotics, but when antibiotics came along, people stopped using them. But they are very effective killers of bacteria, so they're predators of bacteria. The issue with them is that you need, again, you need to know what the organism is that's infecting you in order to pick the correct bacteriophages to kill it. And so that's one of the reasons why they sort of fell out of favor is because it took too long to figure out what, per, what a person had. But now that we're encountering, you know, the ineffectiveness of our antibiotics, people are turning back to these older therapies. And because we can diagnose infections more quickly now, it's more uh, expedient to use bacteriophages than it used to be. But the, as as you're developing, uh, for instance, uh, another antibiotic uh, product uh, to mm-hmm. to deal with one that that maybe is is not being as effective anymore. Uh, you're, as you're going down that road, I mean, you're more than likely going to discover other uh, pro- uh, problems at the same time. Well, there's another bacteria. I didn't know that one was there. Now you've got to go for that one. I mean, you're going out three or four different directions here. Absolutely. There's, well, there's the very. It's got to be very difficult to predict. It's a challenging problem, but one of the one of the things we do is we so the World Health Organization has sort of a you know the most wanted list of the worst bacteria that they really need new drugs for, and so we we try to focus our efforts on finding new antibiotics that will kill those things that are very difficult to kill, um, because some of the older antibiotics still work okay for things that are not on the the top 10 worst bacteria list of the WHO. Which is, you know, one of the reasons why, as I mentioned, Dr. Richardson, the medical officer of health, worried about pandemics, uh, because it's once once this thing starts, it's got to be awfully difficult to try to find a, a way to stop it. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, so you mentioned before um, vaccines. Like, vaccines are still a fantastic way to not have to take antibiotics, right? If you don't get sick in the first place, then this is not an issue. But we are struggling with the anti-vaxxer movement, and there are there are very effective vaccines for a lot of infectious diseases. So, you know, uh, pneumococcal vaccines, for example, can help prevent streptococcal pneumonia in older people. And, you know, they're heavily advertised, but people actually have to go and get them. Exactly, and that's knowledge, and that's uh, that again. Absolutely. That's a discussion you need to have with your physician, I suppose. Laura, it's uh, c- listen. Continued good luck with this. This is important work that you're doing, and, and very necessary work that you're doing. Uh, the symposium, of course, is going on at the uh, the Braley Medical Center right across from Hamilton City Hall, uh, and uh, well, hopefully, something great is going to come out of this too. But thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Great talking with you. Uh, Laurie Burroughs, who's uh, heavily involved in that. And then that's a, that's a legitimate concern about pandemics. And uh, it's it's a little frightening to, to understand that, you know, if it starts to happen, we're not quite sure if we're ready for it from a medical standpoint. But hopefully the work that they're going to be doing during the symposium and the work that's ongoing at McMaster University is going to lead us to a, a, a rationale for this and a cause and a cure for it as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.